This is Broadcast, Talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios. Hello and welcome to the programme. I'm Peter White, Dermot O'Leary to Jake Cantor's Ollie Murs, Stephen Colbert to his David Letterman and Chris Evans to his Jeremy Clarkson. This week, in the cruel and shallow money trench of television, we're back with a producer interview where we peek behind the curtain of BBC Three's drunk and dry-witted comedy Fleabag. We cover the biggest stories and commissions of the week. And finally, we have previews of Borderline, Channel 5's re-entry into the world of comedy, and the night of HBO's remake of BBC drama Criminal Justice, which is set to launch on Sky Atlantic. That's all coming up on Talking TV from Broadcast. Joining me from Maple Street Studios are Kerfuffle founder Stephen D. Wright and Woodcock Media boss Kate Beale. Hi, guys. Hello. Hello. How are we both? Delighted to be here in the new post-Jake Cantor era. And this is my first time, so I'm very excited. Good, good to hear. Uh, Stephen, I gather you must be pleased. Uh, one of your close friends was recently named uh, England football manager. Yes, uh, an old colleague of mine, an old chum, an acquaintance, Sam Allardyce, who I knew as a sort of 17, 18-year-old when my dad was a football player playing with him at Bolton Wanderers. And so I've got that kind of, uh, oh, I know the England manager. <laughs> so, you know, you know what it's like in TV. It's all about networking. <laughs> Another contact. Have you pitched a, a documentary series with him Big yet? Big Sam's, I don't know, football kickabout. Yeah, something like that. Absolutely. Guy one, maybe. I mean, yeah, perhaps. Absolutely. I'd buy it. Absolutely. <laughs> Kate, how's the summer going? Sounds like you're, you're telling me you were quite busy and you might have to cancel the, uh, the yeah, summer. Summer is a cancelled for Woodcut Media now, I'm afraid. We've had quite a chill 2016 so far until Monday. The autumn's going to be full of Woodcut Media programmes, which is good. Mm, congratulations. Thank you. Not, not said with any bitterness or grinding <laughs> at all. First, this week, there's new money in town. Cremplewood Entertainment, the company founded by former Sky commercial boss Mark Wood and sponsor Vision's Blair Kremple, are taking on Group M Entertainment with the backing of Omnicom, Publicis and Interpublic, three of the four largest advertising agencies in the world. They've already financed a bunch of shows, including Sky's Treasures of the British Library, produced by Daisy Goodwin's new company, Nutshell TV, and Channel 5's Tour de Celeb, made by STV and starring the likes of Jodie Kidd and Louis Spence. Kate? What do you think of this? A new opportunity or just another fad? I think anything that gets programmes funded is a good thing. I have no snobbery about where the money comes from. If people are prepared to put money into making television that can be enjoyed by people all over the world, I'm all for it. Yeah, yeah. Um, at Woodcut, we do everything from investor programmes to fully commissioned programmes and fully funded by broadcasters. So we like a plurality of funding models. We like um, being a little bit more opportunistic about where the money comes from because at the end of the day, it's about making great content. And if I can get my idea away with somebody like Cremplewood funding it, thank you very much. Are they more complicated? We, we've written a lot about Group M Entertainment in the last few years. Uh, are these more complicated than just walking into a commissioner's office and getting a show away? Well, it's early days with Cramplewood, so we don't know yet. But what I do know is that they are flexible. Um, they are quite producer-orientated. So I think what they've done is looked at Group M and looked at the, the ways it's worked and, and taken on those and perhaps sort of put their own style into that. Um, and it seems that I don't think there's a kind of one-size-fits-all deal that they do. I think it's depending on the project, the channel, and the broad, and you know the producer, and what does everybody want and what works for everyone. Absolutely, Stephen. Uh, is this a good thing for producers? Or yeah, or... I echo exactly what uh, what Kate says. Basically, anybody who's got money is you know a friend of mine, 
Um, and I would say that I think the deals are a little bit complicated, but they're sort of slightly above my pay grade. I'm all more interested in getting the money for the commission, making the show. That sort of back-end, ad-spend channel, this, ugh, that sounds like you know A-level economics, and I didn't do that. So it's all a bit complicated, but if it means more money, more programmes, then yes, good thing. Do you approach these things differently than you would perhaps just going into a, a broadcaster? I've done one show with Group M. With the system there was you went to the, the channel as normal, Channel 5. Channel 5 then said they liked the programme or whatever. They then suggested Group M. Then you got in touch with Group M. So it was, that was, seen, it was, it, it was all seemed to, to be led via the, the channel and via the commissioner, which is still kind of editorial first. And under those kind of rules, everything's good. If it's a sort of, let's get into bed with Cremplewood, which I'm going to have to remember that name, Cremplewood, Cremplewood, Cremplewood. <gasps> now that somebody has appeared. But that thing of, uh, if we, you know, I mean, I, I don't want to be going to see ads funders first and all that kind of because that gets all complicated and long-winded and boring. If they're quick, that is sounds good, you know. And the fact that there's more than just Group M means a little bit more competition, possibly more money, more whatever. So if it's still the commissioner first, then fine, the system carries on, but... What would be great would be great is if they just start talking, you know, if that, if that money starts to flow, basically. I think at the end of the day, they are business people and they're going to only put their money into good ideas that channels want. And yeah, so there is still a filter. Yeah, the, the channels are not going to put bad ideas on TV just because they can get them funded. Mm. So, Crumple, <laughs> in my estimation, they, they're not, you know, and, and the fact that they're going to put this money down will give a certain filter because the channel will mm. always have to support. They wouldn't, for example, fund a project that didn't have a broadcast attached yeah. you'd always get broadcaster interest yeah. first as someone who set up an indie recently Stephen do you do you care that they uh, these types of companies take uh, an element of your back end <laughs> I mean it's the, the rule in all of these things is everybody wants a bit of the back end everybody wants a bit of the, the slice of the pie but I'd rather have a slice of something than a slice of nothing that's basically what it always comes down to you know there's no point in me going oh I'm very purist I haven't borrowed money I haven't done if you're not actually getting any kind of you know flow it's much better to have 5% or 10% or 15% or whatever of something. You know, yes, they're being exploitative, I suppose, but everybody's exploitative in this game. The- I, don't, I don't genuinely don't think they're being exploitative. I well, think, you know, our terms of trade and our deals that we've had over the past 10, 11 years since terms of trade came in are good. And they're just taking a part of it. They're not taking all of it away. We still get back end. We still get quite a reasonable back end. So I don't think it's exploitation at I mean, all. I think the bigger picture is are the channels sort of allowing the advertising fundy models to take away from actually spending their money. I mean, I can't understand how channels make more money but spend less money on programmes. That's that economic sort of thing doesn't make sense to me. No, but a slice of a slice of something. A slice of something. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure. Uh, I'm yourself. sure they'll be getting a few calls uh, this week after uh, broadcast front page. Moving on. But still sticking with new money, it was revealed this week that Apple ordered a remake of James Corden's Carpool Karaoke. The company is making the new show, which won't feature the Gavin and Stacey star, available to its Apple Music subscribers in 100 territories. Is Apple the new Netflix? Is Apple the new Amazon? Oh, God. I mean, um, part of me sort of sinks when I read these kind of stories because they always look and sound really sexy. A lot of big money and you can imagine a kind of cool lunch in L.A. to discuss this. But this is basically cherry-picking a hit that was already a hit, that's already a worldwide hit. It's like there's no risk-taking here, no experimentation. This is sort of, this is basically the same, same old, same old. It's like somebody suddenly saying, oh, we'll do car share. Oh, it's already a hit, do you know what I mean? The thing that does make me laugh is this was a comic relief sketch from years ago that, you know, nobody seems to have remembered. You know, I hope comic relief are getting a bit of this money. <laughs> 
I've had the same pro- problem with Netflix all along. As long as they are creating and uh, commissioning and creating new stuff, then good. If they're just cherry-picking old stuff and taking people away from the TV model, which has actually paid for these things, then I'm not so keen. Kate, in terms of Netflix and Amazon, a lot has been made of the scripted series. It's interesting that their sort of first big bet is a non-scripted series, essentially an entertainment format. Does that give uh, hope to perhaps non-scripted producers in in a way? It does give hope. I, you know, from my point of view, it's... Uh... I think it's a very good thing that Apple are investing in content. Anyone investing in content is a good thing. Whether they've chosen the right vehicle for which to do it, I'm not 100% sure. It's a bit, it feels to me like it's ITV buying Friends Reunited when Friends Reunited was massive and just about to go down. You know, Carpool was massive. I looked last night, I watched the Michelle Obama one, which everyone has watched, and it had 33 million views last night. Are they really going to be able to replicate that success Mm. with a different host? You know, James Corden is perfect for it. He can sing, he's funny, all of that. I'm not sure what you know, the, the, that they've chosen the right thing to do it with, but I think it's a really positive thing. And the fact they've gone for kind of non-scripted format is brilliant. Have either of you pitched a show with Michelle Obama in it yet? Uh, no, I'm still busy with my Sam Allardyce treatment. Yeah. <laughs> Samantha Cameron or... or <laughs> Sam Cameron's available, Or, or yeah, Theresa May's husband. available. <laughs> uh, Stephen, you mentioned there the, the lunch. One of the interesting things about the Netflixes and Amazons is producers, particularly British producers, always say, you know, how do we get in touch with them? You know, how, how well, do you I, go to do America we... and then you sort of, I don't know, you, you join a, a line with your begging bowl. I think <laughs> that's the actual principle because there's no commissioning editors in Britain. There's no, no. There's no direct line as far as I can work out. You know, the head of European is in L.A. somewhere. That that seems to be a bit of a mystery, in it? and but, I, I don't quite understand it. I but really then, don't. to be fair, TV is a mystery generally, in, <laughs> in terms of you, I pitch to those channels in, or those networks in the same way as I pitch to everyone else, work out who I think I might like, track them down, hunt them, stalk them, and then mm. get a commission. Is hunting them down more difficult, though? Well, you just have to go to America to do so. <laughs> That's Or, you know, find where they hang mm. out. You know, if Netflix had a London office, then... We, I think we'd have a, we'd have a different response, or, and we'd have much better shows on Netflix. You'd be standing outside, wouldn't God, you? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, moving on, finally to our last news story of the week. ITV's half-year financial results show that its production division, ITV Studios, helped insulate the company from the uh, anticipated shockwaves of Brexit. The production unit reported a surge in revenues, helped by a huge rise in in-house spending, up 19% in the first six months of the year. Stephen, is uh, is ITV becoming even more of a citadel than it was this time last year? It sounds like it is. I hadn't actually felt that kind of piss-off vibe or whatever that seems to be the subject of that story. But it's certainly a bit scary that, you know, are they really just going to go through their own companies, which kind of makes sense, but it's a sort of slightly unfriendly way to treat the sort of the indie community. If it is a sort of some sort of secret, you know, um, rule, then I haven't heard it, but then I'm an external indie, so I wouldn't. No, quite. Uh, Kate, as a former ITV producer, what do you what do you think? Well, I have sort of three main thoughts. Firstly, I am thrilled that ITV is doing so well because I think as a nation we need a strong ITV and the BBC needs a strong ITV. Mm-hmm. And it, internationally, you go to America and you see ITV everywhere and it makes you proud of what, what ITV have achieved you know, after quite a rocky noughties. However, I think when their strategy and their strategy is working and their strategy is really clever, which is to acquire indies and and use their content, although it's negative for the indie sector, I think 
I, a couple of years ago, and a few producers probably a couple of years ago, and actually, are, we, are they now my primary customer? No, they're probably not. Perhaps we should be looking elsewhere. And I don't think it's a negative, and I don't feel anything against ITV for doing that. I think I just say, okay, well, they're not my primary place I'm going to get work, so I need to look at the other, other networks in the UK and also networks internationally. Do you think ITV's become, so there's less opportunities for externals, or you don't feel that? Not yet. I mean, that's the thing. When I read your story, I, I did have a little bit of a gasp, you know, because it's, it, it seemed quite shocking. So it's a very hard one to quantify. You know, I mean, I've had a couple of meetings recently, and they're, they're all, you know, we're open for business, blah, blah. It seems to be the same. But, you know, the figures don't lie. So it, I think the end of the day, though, my uh, third point I, I forgot to mention is the fact that ITV are always going to want a good idea. So if you go in there, mm. either with really unique access or an idea that only you can make, they are still going to commission you. They're never mm. going to shut their doors to the indie sector because at the end, you know, they need those hits, they need those viewers, and they come from a plurality of, of, of producers. The dark side of this is, will they listen to an idea and then give it to an internal company? That's what everyone's paranoia is. But then you know. that's been the case with every, you know, you could say that about the BBC for however many years. As you could say that about any broadcaster producer. No, no, but I mean, at the BBC, it was always a kind of rumour. Now we've got the figures. This is the thing. That's the, this is, mm. seems to be a little bit more tangible. That's the thing. It's, it sort of actually casts ITV in a negative light. And it's, and it's not something in particular you want to feel that kind of, uh, that sort of fear. You know what I mean? It's bad enough in telepitching. And I think you just need to be realistic. I think you need to be realistic in the fact that this is the business landscape in which we are operating and therefore this is how we do it. You, know, you give them certain ideas, but you just won't give them some of the others. Six shows from John DeMoore's Talper uh, is an interesting stat that they're, they're working on. It seems that they, uh, they're becoming the John shop. Mm, mm, there's my comment. Okay. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> Finally, our commission of the fortnight. History has queued up access to snooker player Ronnie O'Sullivan in a four-part documentary series called Rocket Ronnie's American Hustle. Produced by North One, O'Sullivan is travelling around the US with ITV sport reporter Matt Smith, seeing if he can beat the local pool sharks. Uh, is this a good idea? Uh, Kate, what do you make of this? I think it's bloody brilliant. Ronnie O'Sullivan is perfect for history. And the way I know history quite well, and the way they commission in the UK is they need those big noisy spikes because they have such great content from America. They don't actually need to commission in terms of hours and volume. What they need to do is market the channel and get people to view the channel. So if you've got all this really glossy content, and you know the content is everything from Vikings, which looks beautiful and is stunning drama, to kind of the high-end um, reality shows that they do you need something that's going to match that level but appeal to the history viewer and somebody like Ronnie O'Sullivan is such a good choice to make that kind of big marketing spike and, and appeal directly to the person that watches the channel Stephen? I just wondered whether or not we're going to see Ronnie O'Sullivan punching somebody and then cracking a snooker queue and then they get on motorbikes and they chase away from a bar and there's money flying and we hope so. It does sound brilliant. It does sound like a right laugh. I'd watch it. Yeah, no, exactly. That was the thing. I read it and I went, oh, hang on, this sounds really cool. And I, and I love the idea of Ronnie O'Sullivan suddenly being a complete hustler. Do you know what I mean? Which I'm sure he is. Suddenly? Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. It has a bit of fun and spirit and, and it actually sounds like really quite cool. It's quite yeah. a simple idea of taking Ronnie mm. O'Sullivan, end of his career, and, and, and doing something with him. Uh, and mentioning it to a few producers that, that I know, everyone sort of went, oh, shit, I wish I'd thought yeah. of that. Oh, it's a, it's is that the thing brilliant. with talent, trying to see, you know, where can we put them or, or where well, can we get that? The thing that... with a good idea is when you say it out loud and everyone goes, oh, that's brilliant. You get it straight away. This is a brilliant idea. It's very simple. It's a cool idea. You know, the last time I saw someone like this was 
Paul Daniels going to, to, to ply his trade as a magician in Vegas as an unknown. And that was actually really, really watchable. But this is actually taking them and playing, you know, and playing to their strengths and, and being a bit subversive. I think, you know, everyone talks about celebrity-led um, projects and it has to be authentic and it has to be passionate. This genuinely does feel authentic. And I think the, the filter I put on it, because we've done a few kind of those um, celebrity-led docs, and it are they doing this without cameras rolling anyway? You know, would Ronnie O'Sullivan love to go to America and do a bit of pool hustling anyway, even if there aren't cameras? He probably does this, anyway, he probably does this at night. Goes exactly. down and puts a wig on and hustles the local cool kids, you know, and makes 20 quid. You know what I mean? That, I, I could see that happening. What's the toughest bit about uh, doing those, those talent-led docs? Keeping everyone happy. Delivering a show that's great for the viewer, but also keeping the broadcaster and the talent happy. It's, it's all its all about diplomacy. And you work with gangsters, so that's even even more important exactly. than, than most, right? The toughest bit of doing a gangster doc is the viewings. So you do a viewing just before it goes on air with said gangster. I've done it with Frankie Fraser and Charlie Richardson and others. And um, having them sit there, watch the programme you've made. Any hairy moments? Uh, Frankie Fraser fell asleep during one of mine. <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty hairy. <laughs> Once uh, Sam uh, loses the England job, which uh, mm -hmm. inevitably will, uh, do you reckon you could take him out to Tampa Bay to, to resurrect his uh, career at the Rowdies? Mm, big Sam takes on America, kick about Sam. Yeah, there's, a, there's something in there. Brilliant. I'll okay. write that out later. <laughs> That's your news. <laughs> Thanks to Stephen and Kate. <laughs> Up next, BBC Three gets down and dirty with Fleabag, one of its first long-form comedies since it moved entirely online earlier this year. Just a word of warning to some of our younger listeners, uh, this next section contains some filth and sexual language. The six-part series was created, written and starring Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who starred in Channel 4's Crashing and ITV's Broadchurch, and wrote on E4's Drifters. Waller-Bridge plays Fleabag, a drunk, angry, cash-strapped, grief-ridden, porn-watching woman who's trying to come to terms with a recent tragedy. She's doing this while dealing with her perfect sister, wondering whether she has a massive arsehole, and masturbating to YouTube footage of President Obama. You can see what I mean about the language. The show is produced by Two Brothers Pictures, the nascent indie run by Jack and Harry Williams, best known for creating The Missing. Series producer Lydia Hampson will be with us in a moment, but first, a clip. Here, Fleabag describes the confessions of a young, single woman on a Tuesday night. You know that feeling when a guy you like sends you a text at two o'clock on a Tuesday night asking if he can come and find you, and you've accidentally made it out like you've just got in yourself, so you have to get out of bed, drink half a bottle of wine, get in the shower, shave everything, dig out some agent provocateur business, suspend about the whole bit and wait by the door until the buzzer goes. And then you open the door to him like you've almost forgotten he's coming over. And then you get to it immediately. Welcome to the programme. Uh, we have Lydia Hampson, who is the producer of Fleabag. Tell us how it, how it all started. How did two brothers get involved? So Jack and Harry Williams, who are the two brothers, had a meeting with Phoebe, maybe... It was a few years ago. It's before Fleabag, the play, went to Edinburgh. Phoebe sort of ended up doing a bit of a ten-minute bit of the character. They loved it and just decided that there was something in this and everyone kind of got on board with what could we do and then after that off Phoebe went to Edinburgh and then when it came back they just decided let's look at all the different things that we could do with this should they do it as a one-off film should it be a series 
Shane Allen and Chris Sussman from the BBC had both seen it, also both loved it. And so a 30 minute pilot script was commissioned to turn that hour long play into a kind of 30 minute episode. And then I came on board and we kind of got it on its feet for the read through. And we did the read through in a little grotty cafe to make it feel like we were in Fleabag's cafe and it was running out of money. And again, Chris Sussman and Jen Allen were there and they really loved it and commissioned episode one as a comedy feed. Uh, Had she always written it as a play? Had she always planning on doing it as a a one-woman show? Originally, and it's before it was an Edinburgh show, I think a friend of hers had runs a kind of stand-up stroke storytelling night and she had this character which was just a almost like a feeling rather than a thought-out set piece yet. Phoebe was, will tell you that she was horrified at the idea of doing stand-up and but she was asked to do it and just thought, the only way I'm going to get through this is if I imagine my best friend Vicky, who's also the co-artistic director of Dry Right, which is a theatre company that, that came up with Fleabag. If I imagine I'm doing this to Vicky, what will make Vicky laugh? And what came out was Fleabag. And as you say, the show went down really well. It's relatively dark. It, there's there's moments of light and, and obviously humour within it, but um, was getting the tone right important? Uh, yeah, massively important. The darkness is a really, I think, a really important part of it because Phoebe always said that the way that she writes is tickle, tickle, punch. So you can make someone laugh and then if you've made them laugh, they've sort of lowered their defences, you sort of got them and then you can twist a knife or then you can throw a punch that they're not expecting. It is filthy. That's something that's come out a lot recently is that lots of the press has said it's the most filthy thing you know we've seen. But it's actually no more filthy than the in-betweeners or bad education, all those things. I think that is partly because it's a woman. Do you think, yeah, if a guy was doing that, we, we wouldn't necessarily, I wouldn't... I to an extent, that. I mean, the in-between is always joked about wanking and dick mm. jokes and stuff, and I think it sort of was received as noisy little schoolboys rather than we've never seen this before outlandish stuff, which I think is possibly because it's a female doing it. You're suggesting she could go even darker or filthier? I, th- I think Fleabag could go anywhere. <laughs> Talking of the characters, I mean, it's an incredible cast. Olivia yeah. Coleman, uh, Hugh Dennis, uh, Hugh Skinner and, and Bill Patterson. That's pretty incredible to get to, for, for any show, you know, let alone a, a BBC Three comedy. It strikes me Olivia Coleman might have more hours in her day than anybody else, she given the number does, of television shows. It, was getting the cast right important for, for Phoebe and yourself? Yeah, massively. Phoebe, because she wrote everything, she knew how it sounded in her head and... I imagine that's quite a possibly difficult process to to hear things done in a different way that's not what you meant, but it's also great and sort of embracing that. People like Hugh Skinner, for example, Phoebe had kind of always imagined Hugh in that role as Harry, so that was almost a no-brainer. Jenny Rainsford, who plays Boo, she's got an incredibly sweet face, but then this slightly hard-edged, dark sense of humour and just sort of got Boo straight away. So that was, yeah, that was great. It's a great script, I think, and that attracted all the cast who did the read-through. We had lots of really great rehearsal meetings, and Phoebe kind of gave as much background as she thought about, and, you know, then the actors all came in, and with, you know, they brought things to the table that they they felt that the characters were doing, and, you know, those meetings were really fruitful and collaborative with people bringing new things to their characters. It was the script. It was the script that was brought them. <laughs> 
because the opening episode is is largely about her. You sort of see some of the other characters. Do they sort of come into their own a little bit more as the series goes on? Yeah. So I'd say that the series is kind of about the, the friendship between Fleabag and Boo, the family life. So there's the sisters. If there's a love story in the show, it's between the sisters. Was BBC Three always the the destination? Was was that what I was always had in mind? I think that originally, purely because the subject matter and the tone of it, we'd wondered whether BBC Two might feel like a, a slightly more obvious fit because it felt slightly older than what I guess I'd imagined BBC Three was. However, once we kind of realised what the show was and what BBC Three was, the fit of someone kind of crushing through as a, an amazing new talent like Phoebe and a show that I think is emerging comedy and drama and, and a new you know we shot it so it hopefully looks a bit like an indie film so you get a sort of exciting new look I think there was a bit more of a sense of freedom that putting something online you don't have to adhere to maybe the same tick box stuff that you might have to do to, to fit this channel or this channel will it get a linear airing yes it's going on BBC two in a month, I think. So it's interesting that you, you've got the freedom to make it, but even then, so while making it, you, you had that, but, but actually it's going to go on the... It's, yeah, the it is going channel. on anyway. I hope it will find a, a maybe a, a bigger audience there just because, I guess, BBC Three being online is a relatively new thing that people are still finding. So I hope that it will find an audience on too. You mentioned the drama element, and there's a, a trend perhaps in the States more so than here of drama comedies where there doesn't have to be an out-and-out sitcom. Um, I'm thinking of shows like You're the Worst and such, which has tended a little bit crossover with this. You know, you were making a, a, a comedy but also had, a, had drama in it. It wasn't, as you say, uh, The Inbetweeners, which is a sitcom and out-and-out mm-hmm. comedy. I think, again, because it, it comes down to that um, idea of what's exciting about making something like this is that you pull the, audience, the rug out from the audience's feet and you make them laugh. They feel like they know where they are this familiar territory and then you do something someone has anal sex and you weren't expecting that or you know just to kind of I think we constantly tried to make the audience feel like they weren't quite sure where they were the show is born out of a character more than anything else and she does some abominable things and Harry Bradbury who directed the the rest of the series after the pilot he he wanted to toe the line of adorability and monstrosity you want the audience to care about her, even if they're not liking what she's doing. I think to create a totally likeable character is maybe a bit bland and finding those dark, dramatic spaces in it is more interesting. Where did you film it? It was all in London. And you filmed it earlier this year, is that right? Yeah, we filmed it in April and May, apart from the pilot, which was last year. Was before. And you um, you had Amazon come on board in terms of the US. Yeah. Did that change anything about the production? No, they came on board last summer. They'd seen the pilot and then they came on board then. They were a massive help in terms of felt like such an exciting new platform to have a kind of American co-partner. But it didn't change anything in terms of the show that we wanted to make. It just made it easier. And In terms of budget and in terms in of In terms of like budget, that. yeah, and in terms of getting the word out. It's just another platform that it's going out on. Do you think that Phoebe approached it differently knowing that it would go out in the States as well or not? I don't think so. I don't quite know what that that would entail to change something like that but it is also quite a quintessentially English show like it would have been hard to try and sludge it to make it fit like fit an international audience for a certain reason is there life past the six episodes is this a character that could could go on yeah uh... definitely I mean Fleabag is she's a young woman she's you know in her early 30s and this is really just the first 
kind of dip into her world. So I think that could go anywhere. Are you interested in terms of, given that it's going on BBC Three online, Mm -hmm. uh, how audiences might find it and how it might be slightly different than if it had a a weekly linear airing? Yeah, I'm really interested. What seems to be happening so far is that lots of people are kind of finding it through iPlayer and it's kind of marketed in lots of short little excerpts and gifts and images and kind of little keywords and stuff and that seems to be great and getting to out to lots of younger people it's going up weekly which I think is good because you seem to be getting a little kind of people wanting to anticipate the next one and another little press bump and another bit bit of attention so that's good was that a conversation you said it going up weekly I when I first watched it the first thing I said was I wish all six episodes were were up there and I was able to see that were you did you guys have the conversation with the BBC in terms of what they were thinking we actually didn't have a direct conversation they were still I think just deciding what the best way to text it would be eventually they decided this is what they wanted to do with it it's working well for us so far when anyone's gone out <laughs> I think it's working well so far in the sense that people are seeming to kind of be writing I can't wait for the next one where's the next one and I think that anticipation is is good is it nice not to be at the mercy of the overnight rating system yes <laughs> it's so nice I've sort of put that to the side of my mind I'm just looking at what the press have said and friends that I've you know emailed and said this bit's good or yeah it's nice just not think you about it you don't wake up moment. at 9 30 in the morning with dread to see how it did no, no thank you <laughs> so what have you got coming up next after Fleabag well Jack and Harry Williams who are the two brothers have been writing a new drama called One of Us which is coming up on BBC One I think this autumn that was Lydia Hampson from Two Brothers Pictures Fleabag continues on BBC Three online Preview time now. It may be August, where the TV schedules are as bare as a redundant commissioner's inbox, but we've got two new shows to talk about. First up, Borderline, Channel 5's return to original comedy. The show is a spoof mockumentary about immigration set in a fictional airport. The six-part series is produced by Ralph Little's production company Little Rock and exec produced by Zoe Rocher. In this clip, Chief Inspector Proctor explains to her team how they're going to implement the government's new immigration strategy. The Home Office have issued a new directive, the three O's, out of the ordinary. If you see anything out of the ordinary, first detain it, then find out about it. Stop first, ask questions later. Andy? What qualifies as out of the ordinary? Well, like a a man with a bomb or... A guy um, in a turban? Yeah, no. No, absolutely not. Sorry, Karim. I don't care. Well, you're asking us to detain anything out of the ordinary without due process. Sounds like profiling. No, no one should be using that word, Grant. What's profiling? It's what you do every day, Grant. No, I don't. Do I? Actually, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Kate, what did you what did you make of this? I really enjoyed it. You know, it's a well-worn format, that kind of mockumentary, but I think it was actually really endearing, really engaging, and I'm just so pleased that Channel 5 have done it. It was it was good. You know, there's a lull in the middle, and then it's sort of picked up again, and, it's, and I can see it getting better because there's some strong characters there. But, yeah, the signal is Channel 5 is sort of open to business again and starting to put out comedies. It's actually quite clever. It says quite a lot about Britain right now. It's You know, there's, some of these jokes are quite edgy. It was good. I liked it. It felt properly funny. Yeah. Which you didn't expect. What did you think of the mockumentary style? Like, we've seen it with the, you know, shows like The Office, obviously, and such. Did you uh, did you feel that worked for, for it? 
I think it did, and I think you can see from a budget point of view it probably worked because mm. of the, the filming techniques. But actually, those comedies still work, you know, from the people like us onwards. And it, mm. it felt quite Parks and Recreation as well. Mm. I think the key, and Stephen said about it, was the characters. I actually really warmed to the characters, and you only watch these shows because you like the people in it. I mean, I think that mockumentary format becomes invisible. You stop noticing it because it's then about, is it funny? Are we actually following a, a story? Is this scene funny? To me, the mockumentaries are sort of, who cares? It's, is it funny? And it is funny. It is really funny. And it, it, feel get, and it feels like it's going to get funnier because, you know, we're starting to see the kind of the dynamic and then every week it'll hopefully get different or more outrageous, et cetera, et cetera. It felt very modern to me. It felt modern for me because of the subject matter. Yeah. You know, in Channel 5 being the channel that did benefits and kind of, you know, mm. broke that and all and all the kind of programming they do, they do very much what's the, the nation talking about. Yes, we're talking about immigration, we're talking about customs, we're talking about people mm. coming into the country. So this is a really nice and clever way of poking fun at that at the moment. I mean, and we need that light relief as yeah. a country. <laughs> That's quite a lot of effort. It's quite a lot of pressure on them. Got to cheer up the country. But no, I mean, if you compare this to something like Come Fly With Me mm-hmm. that Williams and Lucas did a couple of years ago for the BBC, where they also did a, a customs officer who was a bit overzealous. And this feels slightly more real. It's slightly more gritty and a little bit cheaper, as in, and I don't mean cheaper budget wise, but in that sort of budget airline type way, which is another facet of modern travel. You know, that kind of cheap, cheap end of travel is quite grimy. And that sort of sense of despair, which all great comedies have, is there. My favourite bit was um, there are two Asian-looking um, luggage handlers and one of them's a Muslim and one of them isn't. But the one who isn't can't quite bring himself to tell the Muslim that he isn't actually a Muslim. And there's a whole kind of things that you're not really allowed to say but you can say through comedy. Mm. Um, Do you think this will help Channel 5? They've been trying to, to bring in younger viewers and, and yeah. change the perception of the channel. I think Channel 5 has, has, has really quite succeeded in this already. I mean, if you watch over the last few weeks, there's been, you know, sort of dating formats, there's been the, the Ryland show, which I thought was brilliant. The channel is getting clearly younger it's a little bit trashy but that that is a huge audience of young people that's what they want do you think they don't mind that the the overall numbers uh, ratings aren't aren't great but they're bringing in that 16 well, it, to 34 you know, this is for this is for advertisers you know what i mean it's not for it, this is an advertiser thing advertisers want young people you know that and it, it brings in a whole new kind of demographic under ben frow he's been there what two or three years now not that long but it's changed from being sort of old men watching documentaries about Hitler to young kids uh, watching mad, you know, teenagers punching hell out of each other. I think I disagree slightly with that because actually what it feels to me like is it's now a channel for more, for everyone. So I do think there's still that ABC One kind of more factual content there but they've just bought in the younger viewers as well they're kind of it feels like a broad mainstream entertainment channel. They've opened it up. I mean it was very narrow before definitely. We will leave it there. Borderline begins on Tuesday on Channel 5 at 10pm. Next up is Sky Atlantic's The Night Of. The eight-part drama was produced by BBC Worldwide for HBO and is based on the Ben Whishaw-fronted drama that aired in 2008. The US version, written by The Wire's Richard Price and Moneyball's Steve Zalian, stars British actor Riz Ahmed as Naz, a Pakistani-American college student accused of murdering a girl. In this clip, whilst having dinner with his family, Naz reveals that he has an invite to a hot basketball party. So, what are you doing tonight, Baba? Um, uh, me and Ahmed got a thing to go to. Thing? Yeah, like a team party downtown. Team party? Mm-hmm. What team? The Kings. The Kings? Yeah. I don't like you going to something like that. Like what? A party like that. Like, like Downtown. Like black? Hmm? Like black party. I didn't say that. 
The Night Of. Interesting that this is a remake of a, a British drama. We don't normally see HBO doing that. What, uh, what do you think of that, Kate? I think it makes me proud to be British because HBO is the the pinnacle of drama almost in the whole world. It's the, the it, they're the people who make the cool dramas like you know Sopranos for starters, and the fact that they've chosen British story to replicate is it is a good thing. When will Midsummer Murders be remade in a kind of multi million pound version? with fantastic teeth and amazingly good-looking stars. Um, no, this was great. I mean, it was. I didn't realise initially and then remembered halfway through. I think I've seen this before. It's a problem for me. It felt quite samey. It didn't feel uh, like, oh, my God, this is an amazing thing. It just felt like a very good classic US cop drama, blah, blah, whatever. And it, it, it good to see Riz Ahmed, uh, you know, man for no for things like Four Lions, uh, doing well so mm. well in the, in the I States. love him. I mean, he was in... Um, uh, Nightcrawler recently, you know, he stole the show from Jake Gyllenhaal. It's quite weird now because he seems to be like an American actor. He's, you know, he's as British as they come, but he's actually a proper American star now. So, yay! There's a, a challenge ad- adapting shows like this. We've seen uh, seen quite a few fail, and uh, this week they announced uh, Stars was remaking Peep Show I- in the US. And other mm. than The Office, uh, I can't think of too many that have uh, have succeeded in the states. Is there a difficulty with? Them? I mean, it's. it's... God, it's so depressing when they make a, when they remake a comedy. I mean, Peep Show is, isn't ab fab, for example. You know, so it's not kind of blatantly drinking and, and and whatever. But it is fairly edgy and out there. So the usual thing of the whitewash, take out the laughter, take out the point of the whole show, etc., etc., etc. I mean, you know, when you hear comedy writers talking about the notes they get back from commissioners in America, you know, you just you think they're joking, but they're not. It, it is a it is a take that out and whoa, oh, do we really believe in that whole conceit? Well, that's the whole point of the show. I think sometimes as well the reason some British shows work and some shows in America work is because of the people who are in it. So if you're remaking it with different cast of actors, comedians, whoever, sometimes it just simply doesn't work because that chemistry isn't there. The Office is a really good example of where they cast very well, but it could have gone horribly wrong if they hadn't got the right person in the lead. Do we think this has got some potential? Night Of's going to be a hit because it looks good. It's uh, it's a good story and it works. And it will rate on Sky Atlantic who are having it over you know here, I, mean? I think. It, it is, it's slightly slow, mm. so that'll be interesting to see for the American audience if it does work in that way because they're used to more uh, sort of quicker, upbeat procedurals. Yeah. But it looks amazing. Obviously, Sky Atlantic has this HBO output deal and, and largely stuff from the States. Uh, last week, we uh, we wrote a story about Zy Bennett unveiling plans to... to commission a few more shows he was looking for his own making a murderer own you know version of the jinx is that a channel that you think has some potential for for original opportunities for for someone like uk i think it does but i think it has to be a really 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 special idea because sky atlantic like hbo is the pinnacle of drama in the world sky atlantic is one of the premium probably possibly the premium channel in the uk so the the documentaries and the factual will have to be big name directors big name talent big big ideas and they don't come along very often. So I will only pitch to that channel when I have something really good. They're not going to take X on the beach, are they, Stephen? What's, uh, what's, mm, what's, no, what's your version hit, of the show for, for Sky Atlantic? It's difficult. Sky Atlantic want marquee names and they want documentaries that can run in the cinema, that sort of thing. They're not a channel that are going to experiment. You know, I wish they would. I wish they'd put sort of late night Sky Atlantic, you know, like something where they could take risks and things. But no, they you know they are a marquee channel. They want the best and won't necessarily risk their money 
So that always puts me off a bit. But I do watch the channel quite a lot. So, you know, I'm a bit but of a in, hypocrite. Interestingly, you say they won't take, they won't experiment. But where else do you see some of those really big feature dogs? If not on Sky Atlantic, no one else broadcasts them. So actually, they are a, ho- well, a BBC necessary two. home. BBC Two and Channel Four used to do quite a lot of that stuff. You know, BBC Two used to do Storyvilles that were always these. That, that, the, there's always been a home for a big hit documentary, capturing the Freedmans or whatever those type of things. The problem, you know, how often do you come across those stories? You know, that's the thing. Are Sky Atlantic running a kind of bursary scheme for documentary makers? Because finding the germs of those ideas, you don't know you've struggled, you've stumbled upon a worldwide classic documentary until you're doing it. So we can all commission hits once they're hits. Well, we'll look forward to The Night Of, which launches on Sky Atlantic at the start of September. That's your lot for this week's Talking TV. Thanks to my guests, Kate, Stephen and Lydia. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with more telly chats. The producers of the show were Matt Hill and Chica Ayres. And I'm Peter White. Thanks for listening. See you on the other side. You've been listening to Broadcast. Talking TV. Recorded at Maple Street Studios.